0: Good morning Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are here. Hope you're going to have a great afternoon. I'm hoping to get a nap this afternoon. That's my uh, plan for Father's Day. So uh, hey, before we get started this morning, uh, let me uh, remind you, if you are a member here, last week we presented to you next year's ministry plan and an overview of our our budget breakdown uh, for how monies will be used in various ministries in the church, and then uh, as you exited the doors, you, uh, there was the uh, latest, greatest copy of FG News, and it has the ministry plan inside. If you didn't get this last week, we invite you to go ahead and pick one up as you uh, leave today, just one per family. That would help us. Also, you should have received an email this past week highlighting, once again, next year's ministry plan And at the bottom, there was a button there for uh, you to uh, affirm the plan. Now, I'm not gonna go through all that again. Our elder chairman, Chris Corley, did a great job uh, on the video uh, last week, explaining that, and that video is uh, available online. But I do want to underline, once again, that next year's budget is 4.9% over the 21-22 budget. 4.9% above last year's budget. And if you think about it, I think we all know that uh, we're spending at least 5% in just about everything we buy, and so just like it's costing you more, it costs more to do ministry, And so, but when you think about that, factor in inflation in, we're basically kind of just breaking even on this year's budget. It's really not higher that much higher than last year, but the good news is we have figured out ways to expand ministry in the coming year without uh, terrible increases in cost, and so Uh, So if you've already affirmed the plan, that's great. Thank you so much. If you have not, uh, we're asking that you do that in the next couple of days. You got until next Sunday, uh, June 26th to do so. There'll be another email coming to you this week that'll give you that opportunity. Or you can simply go online to uh, www.fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash ministry plan and you scroll to the bottom and hit the button to vote up or down on the plan. Now, if this is your first time here, we wanna welcome you, we're so glad you've chosen to worship with us, and one of the things that we want you to know about us is, most Sunday mornings, you'll find that we are teaching through, studying our way through whole books of the Bible, that's our bread and butter approach to uh, Sunday worship, Uh, but most summers, we take a more topical approach, and that's what we're doing now, with our summer sermon series that's entitled, Here is Your God, which is a study of the attributes of God. And I can't say enough and I can't stress enough how important it is that we think rightly about God, because what you think about God really is the most important thing about you. What you think about God will color and shape how you live your life every single day, and so in this series, we're asking the question, what is God like? What is God like, and we are focusing on different attributes of the one true living God who has revealed himself in creation, and Jim did a great job talking about God as creator last week, so yes, God has revealed himself in the beauty of creation, but he's also revealed himself in scripture in the 66 books of what we call our Bible. And most of all, God has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, who was and is the human embodiment of all that our holy God is and does and says. And so today, we're focusing on God's attribute of holiness. What is God like? God is holy, he is our Holy Father, So there's your Father's Day message, okay? I had to work that in or some of you would be upset that he didn't mention it. So, But uh, happy Father's Day, God's our Holy Father. Now, I want you to take your Bible and find your way to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah chapter six and we've got a lot of ground to cover so we're just gonna jump right in. By the way, as you're finding your way there, I'm gonna plug two resources that I found very helpful in my study this past week. The first uh, resource is Paul Tripp's new book, entitled "Do You Believe? Do You Believe?" and and uh, this book has two very insightful chapters unpacking the doctrine of God's holiness and how God's holiness impacts our daily lives. It is very practical. Not just for this particular attribute of God, but the whole book is phenomenal. You really need to get it. And then the second resource I found very helpful was Tim Mackey's Bible Project video on God's holiness. You absolutely have to watch this video and if you just Google um, holy and Bible pro- plus Bible Project, you will find it. And as I said, both these resources really helped me this past week. And I have incorporated ideas and insights and illustrations from both these resources into my message today. Isaiah 6. Now, Isaiah was one of ancient Israel's most prominent prophets. He wrote uh, like the longest book in the Bible. He came on the scene in Israel's history during a very dark time. It was a time of great injustice and corruption among the people of God, the people of Israel. There was great wealth and affluence uh, in the land, but injustice ruled the day in their society, especially among the elite. And if you read chapters one through five, you'll see how uh, widows and orphans and the poor were being neglected and oppressed and taken advantage of. And you'll also see how upset Yahweh is with his people for how they've turned their backs on him. For example, Isaiah calls them out, chapter one, verse four, he says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised, this is his favorite title for God, the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. So like in the days of Judges, that we studied back in the winter and spring, God's own people were again turning their backs on Yahweh, worshiping other gods, the gods of other nations, and they were being culturally influenced by the greedy, immoral, idol-worshiping surrounding culture. God was not happy about it. Chapter 5, verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he struck them, and he stretched out his hand against them. And so Isaiah steps on to the scene at this very dark time in Israel's history, and he has this incredible experience with God. And that's what we read about here in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he he flew, now just push pause right here before we go any further, you need to let your mind explode at this scene right here, because what's happening here is, it's, it's very strange, it's bizarre, it's otherworldly, and whatever images come into your mind, it's much more weird and much more strange than anything that you can imagine. I googled Isaiah six plus images, and I found this online which again, I know no picture can capture the glorious greatness of what Isaiah saw, but I just show the picture because you've got to get in your mind how bizarre this is. Like, like if I were to stand up here this morning and say, hey, I want to tell you last night I had a vision and, and, and I dreamed and then I went on to describe this scene right here, you would look at me and go, Charlie, what were you smoking? I mean come on bro what I mean it's 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 like so strange and it's so bizarre to us but in the culture of the bible this is not strange this is not bizarre because in the bible you find that sometimes God reveals himself in this way to certain people people like Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and John in the book of Revelation yeah sometimes God reveals himself by kind of pulling back the curtain and the prophet is able to see behind and beyond the normal day-to-day reality of what's going on in the world. And the prophet sees what is really going on behind the scenes in the throne room of God. So the curtains are pulled back and Isaiah sees that with the death of good king Uzziah, and that's turned everything upside down in a lot of people's minds, it looks like things are falling apart But what Isaiah sees is that God is still on the throne. He's doing something. He's up to something, and that's what Isaiah sees. He sees God in this throne room, and he doesn't describe God so much. He describes what God is like. He's like a great king seated on a royal throne. He has a robe that spills out onto the floor and fills the entire temple. And he goes on to describe what's going on around the throne And he sees these creatures above the throne. He calls them seraphim, seraphim. Very strange. And this word seraphim occurs only here in the Bible. Only here in Isaiah 6 in the whole Bible. But this is kind of a common piece of what prophets see when God pulls back the curtain like this and they get a vision of God's divine presence ruling over all things. These creatures are called by other names in the Bible, like angels or maybe cherubim or living creatures in Revelation. So the question is, what are these living creatures? Well, they're definitely not precious moment figurines or they're not uh, Raphael's famous baby Cupid angels. I I don't know where these images come from, but they don't come from the Bible because these creatures are terrifying and awe-inspiring at the same time. In Hebrew, the word seraphim actually means something that's on fire. Fiery creatures with three pairs of wings. Maybe something like like this. Or if we take the fiery brilliance away, maybe they look something like this. Again, no picture comes close. I'm just using pictures like this to expand the boundaries of your imagination. But they're fiery creatures. Multiple wings. Some of them have are full of eyes. Some of them have animal-like features. They're just bizarre, otherworldly. They're terrifying. If you were to meet one, you would think you're gonna die. And, 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 and you wouldn't do that if you saw a baby Cupid angel. And what are they doing? They're hovering over the throne, and they're like guardian, the guardians of divine presence. That's their role. They're like God's royal attendants. And then what are they doing? They're screaming. They're crying out. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, holy is the only attribute of God that's repeated three times like this in the Bible, and Jim drew attention to it last week in in the amazing otherworldly scene around the throne of God in the book of Revelation. God is holy, and holy is a word that is used over 800 times in the Bible But it's not a word that we typically use in daily conversation. So what does it mean? What does holy mean? Well, in Hebrew, holy means to cut or to separate. And when we talk about God being holy, we're talking about the fact that God is set apart from us. He is utterly unique in a class by himself. He's one of a kind, distinctly different from everything that's ever existed or that ever will exist. Exodus fifteen eleven says, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you in majestic holiness?" First Samuel two two says, "There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God." I think when most people hear the word holy, we tend to think about the moral behavior of religious people, right? Like, like, like. Oh, she thinks she's so holy or he's got such a holier than now attitude. Or maybe you think of, of, uh, of like a holy man, like the Dalai Lama or something like that. Holy is a religious word for us, but at its core. At its core, it's not about behavior. That's a part of it, but at its core, it's talking about someone's status or something's status as unique and distinct and totally different and unlike anything else. And God is holy, holy, holy. Not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. Thrice holy, meaning he is so unique, so different from us, so far beyond anything in our ordinary experience, we have nothing to compare him to. We have no categories to help us understand him and his holiness. And that's a challenge for us. But there is one thing that you and I come across day to day in our everyday lives, or if you don't see it every day, you always are constantly aware of its presence and what I'm referring to is that gigantic, huge, 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 thrice huge, ball of gas and flame and heat up in the sky. And what am I talking about? Well, it's on the screen. So, yeah, I'm talking about the sun. Now, of course, here in Greenville this past week, we became very aware of the sun because the heat index was like over 100 every single day. The sun, the sun is holy. It's a holy thing. It is holy in our solar system. Because how many suns are there in our solar system? Well, there's just one. There's nothing like it, else like it. Now, of course, there are other solar systems and other galaxies and other suns so in the universe. And so, from that perspective, our sun is not holy. But for us... And our little planets going around the sun in our solar system, there's just one sun, and it's holy, and the holiness of the sun is like the holiness of our God. Think about it this way. Uh, The holy, unique power and energy of the sun. Do you like the sun? I mean, is the sun good? Is the sun beneficial to you? Like, this is not a trick question. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we like the sun very, very much. I mean, we exist because of the sun. Without the heat and power and energy of the sun, there would be no biological life on planet Earth. No sun, then there's no trees, no plants, no animal life, no human life. Without the sun, we don't exist. The sun is holy, it's good, it's beneficial to us. But, does that mean like the holy, unique sun is, is like your buddy, Like, this is silly, but if you could, would you teleport to the surface of the sun and have a picnic there? Well, no, no, of course not. What will the sun do if you were to teleport there and have a picnic there? (sighs) Just like that. I mean, it'll kill you. It'll obliterate you. It'll roast you. Why? Because the sun is bad? No, we've already said the sun is really, really good. It'll roast you because you're just a puny human we're just not able to face the raw energy and power, the holy generative power of the sun in this little bag of bones here. I'm not ready to face that. And so the sun is good, but it'll also obliterate me. You follow me here? The holiness of the sun has this dual nature. It's good for me. It gives me life, but at the same time, if I'm exposed to it, unprotected, it'll destroy me. That's interesting and weird at the same time. It's good but it'll kill me. That's the Son's holiness. And God is holy in a way that's similar to the Son's holiness. Look at verse three. What are the seraphim calling to each other? Holy, holy, holy. And to what do they link God's holiness? To the whole earth. The whole earth, all of creation, is packed full of God's glory. So the seraphim link link God's holiness to his status as creator, as the one who gives us life. All creation is like a theater. It's like a show of God's glory and goodness and his unique power as creator, and God is holy because he's the only one who has the power to create and sustain life in this world. So first of all, God's holiness is his unique status as the creator and sustainer of the universe. That's first. But we see something else about God's holiness in the Bible, and that is that God's holiness is his moral purity, his moral perfection. Now, don't think behavior here. Think God's moral purity is his passion for goodness and justice and beauty and truth and love. In fact, in the Bible, God's holiness is rooted in the fact that he is the ground of all that is good and true and right. And so when we talk about God's holiness as moral purity, as moral perfection, we mean That he and he alone defines right and wrong, true and false, good and evil. Now I got curious and I looked up morality online and pretty much all the definitions of morality boil down to this one. Morality is the human attempt to define what is right and wrong about our actions and thoughts and what is good and bad about our being who we are the human attempt to define what is right and wrong about our actions and thoughts and what is good and bad about being who we are. The human attempt. Now, here's the thing. Viewing morality as a human attempt to define what is right and wrong and what's good and bad about us, that's exactly why the world is so messed up today. Christian, here is your God and. Isaiah 6, here is your God, he is holy in everything he says and does all the time. Your holy God is the ground of all that is good versus evil, right versus wrong. He, defi- uh, uh, he, 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 he defines love, not us. He defines justice, not us. He defines what it means to be human, not us. Your holy God has woven right and wrong into the fabric of our universe because he's the essence of moral perfection. He has a passion. It's built into him, a passion for truth and goodness and beauty and justice. It's packed into him. Now here's the thing. Because God is holy, what he has created is holy. Because God is holy, what he has created is holy. And this has lots of ramifications. Think with me here. Because God is holy, life is holy. So whenever we devalue human life, when we talk about humans being nothing more than animals, when we, eva- when we elevate personal choice over human life, it's an offense to our holy God who is the creator of life. Life is holy because God is holy. And because God is holy, gender is holy. So when we deny that God created human beings as male and female, it's an offense to our holy God who created us male and female in his image to reflect his image, the image of his holiness in this world. Gender's holy because God is holy. Because God is holy, sex is holy. So, when we disobey God's holy standards for sex and sexuality, it's an offense against our holy God who gave sex as a gift to be enjoyed only within the bounds of holy matrimony. Marriage is holy because God created it. Holy God creates holy marriage. All people are holy. Because God is holy, all people are holy. So when we disparage a person because of race or social class, it's an offense against our holy God because he created people, all people, red, yellow, black, and white, as precious in his sight. So because God is holy, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are holy. You see how this works? Do you see how important it is to think rightly about the holiness of God? Do you see that how you think about the holiness of God shapes how you live your life every day and how you think about life, the life you live every day? Here's the bottom line. Because God is holy, there is moral right and wrong because whatever a holy God creates, whatever God says is holy. Politics, government mandates, democratic vote, Supreme Court decisions, all human attempts to define what is right and wrong and what's good and bad about us, all of that, all those human attempts are an affront to the holiness of our creator to whom we must give an account. One more time, holy is the essence of who God is. Therefore everything God has created, everything that God has said is holy. That means life is holy, humanity is holy, gender is holy, marriage is holy, sex is holy, justice is holy, race is holy, money is holy. All those things are holy because holy God created those things. And that means that he and he alone in moral perfection has the right to tell us what's right or wrong, good or evil, and true or false. You see, something is not right or wrong simply because a Bible verse tells us it's right or wrong. No, it's right or wrong because it's rooted in God himself. In God's very being. In the moral perfection of who God is. That's why the Bible verse is there. It's not just a rule. But of course, God's definitions of right and wrong are going to be radically different from our godless human attempts to define right and wrong. Hear me, every single cultural battle we find ourselves in today is the direct result of people making what is holy common. All human attempts to define and legislate what's right and wrong and what's good and bad about us is the direct result of making familiar, making common, making no big deal out of what God has called holy life no big deal you decide male female no big deal you decide sex no big deal you decide marriage no big deal you decide justice oh yeah justice is a big deal but it's not but today it's not god's justice applied to everyone equally and fairly all too often human attempts to define justice depend on who you are sometimes based on the color of your skin or sometimes based on what political affiliation you align with. Listen, when people reject the idea of a holy God, this is the world you get. Are you seeing this? Uh, If so, if you see God the way the Bible really says he is, what does that do to you? Does it anger you? Does it scare you? Does it humble you? Does it cause you to rethink some of the things you think about God in life and faith? Back to Isaiah 6. What happens when Isaiah gets teleported into the presence of a holy God and he sees God as he really is in all his power and purity? I mean, is Isaiah comfortable? Does he want to camp out there and have a picnic? (laughs) No, look at verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook like an earthquake at the voice of him who called And the house was filled with smoke. What did seeing God's holiness do to Isaiah? He said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh the Almighty. So here's Isaiah who, by the way, was already a prophet. Just read chapters one through five and you'll see he's already a prophet. He knows about God, but he goes into the temple. He goes to church one day and he's not expecting anything different from any other experience in the church. He just goes to church, he goes to temple, he goes through the motions of what he knows about God. He's had what you might say is kind of a comfortable relationship with God up to this point. But now he sees God for who he really is. And he is completely undone, completely undone. It's like he's standing on the surface of the sun. He is in the presence of a being that is so massively and majestically unique, so powerfully terrifying, he's bowled over and he sees himself for who he really is, a puny little human. And he's in the presence of Yahweh who's the definition of holy power and holy perfection and when he get this when he sees god for who he really is he sees himself as he really is his eyes are open he, and he sees himself as utterly naked and broken and exposed but that's that doesn't mean that god's holiness is a bad thing it simply means that isaiah knows he's not fit to be in the presence of god and that's not god's problem that's our problem Now, it's at this point we start to get nervous because, uh, you know, especially people in our culture or people in our church that the culture has gotten into, We start to feed into this stereotype of, oh yeah, I knew it was coming. I I just knew, you know, in this series on on God, I just knew we would eventually get around to it because here's that stern, authoritarian, perpetually ticked off at humans kind of God that I just detest. That's not my God. Yeah, 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 God's perfect. He hates human evil. He can't stand human failure. And he's this I'm gonna roast you kind of God. I knew it was coming. Here it is. Now, you could not be more wrong. But in a way, you couldn't be more right. Here's the thing about God's holiness. I think many people today think of God's holiness as kind of a personality disorder on his part. I mean, we look at our sin and we're like, yeah, God, I, I admit it. Like, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm. It's just, but it's no big deal. I mean, God, look, I'm a human. I am a puny human. I, I, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as he is. And I never did what she did. I, I'm not perfect, I admit it. I screw up, I'm human, it's no big deal. Just cut me some slack, God. Why do you have to be so uptight about all of this? And it's like we think that God has this OCD thing with human sin human failure. Like, God, like God's like, I can't stand it, I can't stand it, I can't bear to look at it. Now is that the case? Or is it the case is it the case that we've become so steeped in our sin, that we become so adapted to our sin and selfishness and brokenness, that we actually don't see anything wrong with it anymore? You see, the problem is, sin doesn't always appear sinful to us, does it? All too often, sin seems attractive. It seems, it's magnetic. It, 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 but it's only in the face of the holiness of God that you come to realize that sin is more than a list of bad behaviors that sin is more than a list of thou shalt nots culled out of Bible verses. When we truly see God is holy, we begin to see sin as a heart condition where we elevate personal choice and personal autonomy over God's rightful, loving rule over our lives. So yeah, God's holiness is what confronts the sin in our hearts. God's holiness exposes us for who we really are, and we don't like that. But that doesn't mean that God has a problem. It means I'm the one with the problem. Think about it this way. Let's go back to our our sun illustration. So it's been really, really, really hot this past week, and I, like many of you, I have complained about it just about every day. How many of you complained to your friends? Yeah, okay. We've all been complaining about it. Cause you just walk outside and this wave of heat hits you and you get all sticky and all that kind of stuff, especially the at least the last couple of days has been a little cooler and, and the humidity not as bad. But like this ugh. now, now I don't think any of us have done this. We might complain to our friends, and I know this is kind of silly, but I don't think any of us would be we we didn't stand outside and complain to the sun. Like, why do you have to be so hot? Like why can't you turn the heat down a little bit? I mean, you're the sun, you can regulate yourself, can't you? Come on, give us a break. And, 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 and you get so mad at the sun, this is silly, you, you get a group together that doesn't want the sun to be so hot. And so you organize a protest march against the sun with banners and signs, no more heat, no more heat, You know, because you think your definition of heat is better than the sun's decision to be hot. S- silly. If the sun could talk what do you think the sun would say to you puny human you exist because i give off heat and you're going to kick back and protest against the heat and energy i'm giving out do you seriously do you really want to do that now that's just as silly just as absurd as humans protesting against the holy God when he confronts and judges our sin and our brokenness. Do you really wanna do that? Think about it this way. If you get ticked about the idea of God judging and confronting your sin and brokenness, let's just, let's flip the coin over. Let's flip the coin over. Let me ask you, what would you prefer then? Would you prefer that God is not holy? You know, Do you want a God who is just kinda apathetic, about human sin and brokenness and injustice? Do you want a God who doesn't care? Uh, Do you want a God who's... As morally inconsistent as we are, is that what you want? If that's what you want, you, you want to go back to worshiping the gods of ancient Greece and Rome who would love you one day and they would smite you down with the thunderbolt the next day. You never knew where you stood with gods like that because there were no rules and no definitions. They just called all the shots. Is that what you want? Do you want a God who's not the essence of all justice and goodness and truth and what is right? Because you see, if there's no holy God who objectively defines what is true and right and good, then I hope you don't mind if I sneak out and steal your car. And then go to your house and steal your computer and your brand new big, t- big screen TV. I mean, at the moment you kick back and say, well you can't do that, that's wrong. I'll say, well you don't get to believe in right and wrong because you don't believe in a holy God. Now, of course, you don't prefer that I steal your computer. You prefer that I don't do it, uh, steal your car. And it may not be beneficial for society if I'm running in and, 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 and stealing, but you can't say it's wrong. It's just a human attempt to define what's right and wrong. And different cultures around the world have different human attempts to define right and wrong. So right and wrong, and this is what we're seeing today, right and wrong is not applied equally across the board. You only get to believe in right and wrong if you believe in a holy God. So the irony is, we kick back against this idea of a holy God who embodies moral purity and perfection, a holy God who has defined right and wrong for us, who in his holiness judges our sin, and we kick back against that God, but the moment we say, that's just wrong, that is so unloving, that is so unjust, when you say that, you're actually saying, I believe in a holy God, I want a holy God, because need, we need somebody that's going to set a standard. We're so two-faced. We want to believe in right and wrong, but when right and wrong confronts me and my sin, we get ticked off and we say, God, who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? The problem is we get t- ticked off when God confronts us because we have a distorted image of God. We see God as a stern, demanding, hard nosed, authoritarian, always perpetually ticked off at humans kind of God, rather than a God who, who, as creator, has defined what is right and wrong for our highest good. He is holy God. He knows what leads to life and what leads to death, and He really does want your highest good. But what he says is your highest good is gonna conflict with what your culture tells you. Let me show you this, let me show you this. So what does God's holiness do when it exposes and judges Isaiah's sin and brokenness? Look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Now, I just got to push pause right here because there is so much more to this story. There's a lot more that we could talk about, but we just can't cover today. We haven't come close to exhausting the subject of God's holiness, not even close, but we're going to finish up right here because this is so powerful. And it's really important for you to get this. So, what's the purpose of God's holiness in this story? What does God's holiness do to Isaiah? What does it do for Isaiah? Does it destroy him? No, it confronts him and judges him. It exposes his sin and brokenness. But why? For what purpose? In order to heal him and save him. That's the purpose. What's the purpose of God's holiness? Yes, to confront and expose what's wrong, but then to do something about it. Look at this, this very, very disturbing, powerful image here of how God deals with Isaiah's sin. God's royal attendant takes from the altar of sacrifice a burning coal and he flies over and he touches that hot coal to Isaiah's lips. Does that sound like a good time to anybody? I don't think so. So, to apply today's reading of scripture, I want you to go home, turn on the front burner of your stove, wait till it's red hot, then press your lips on it, and then you can experience what Isaiah experienced. No, 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 that's crazy. That's the image. That is the image right here. When Isaiah sees the angel coming toward him, the angel has the fire of God in his hand. Now, Isaiah knows what that means because every single place in the Hebrew Scriptures, the fire of God represents God's judgment, God's wrath. It never represents cleansing or purification. So when Isaiah sees God for who he is, he sees himself for who he is, he sees his sin, and the minute he confesses his sin, here comes the fire of God. He must have thought he was a goner. He must have thought he was about to be obliterated. I mean, this is the fire of God. Even the angel can't touch it. He has to pick it up with tongs. But when the fire touches his lips, now think about that. The fire touches the point at where he had just confessed. He's a prophet. The fire touches his lips. And he says immediately, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. That had to be painful. But immediately, instead of consuming him, he realizes he's been cleansed. He's been pardoned. God says, your guilt is removed and your sin has been atoned for. (laughs) And in the very next verse, God says, hey, who am I going to send? Who will go for me? And do you see what all this means? Do you see what God is saying? One second after Isaiah realizes he didn't deserve to live, one second after he realizes he is more wicked and flawed than he ever dared believed, he is now more affirmed and valued and wanted than he ever dared hope. And here's God saying, I, I, I'm, I've got this little business where I'm saving the world, and I'm looking for a new partner. Are you interested? And then and, and, and he says, by the way, this is a job that's going to be really horrible because you're going to preach for your whole life and nobody's going to listen to you. You're still interested in Isaiah. What would cause Isaiah to say this? I'm your guy. Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. What would cause him to want to give his life in the service of God? It's because he saw God for who he really is and he saw himself for who he really is and he saw that God... Cleansed him, saved him, healed him, restored him. He was deconstructed and reconstructed in the same moment. He was undone, taken apart, put back together again in the same moment. And we say this a lot around here, but here is the perfect example. At the same moment, Isaiah realized he was more wicked and sinful than he ever dared believed At that same moment, he realized he was more loved and affirmed than he ever dared hope because of the grace of God. Now, how is that even possible? How could the fire of God be an agent for both judgment and cleansing at the same time? It's because Isaiah 6 points forward to something greater. Do you know that centuries later, almost the same kind of thing happened? Do you know that the temple was shaken? Do you know that there was an earthquake because God came down? Do you know that the temple was so shaken, the doorposts were so shaken, the threshold was so shaken that the veil separating the holy of holies was ripped in two from top to bottom, opening up the way of access for holy people to come into the presence of holy God? Do you know when that happened? Matthew 27, 45, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour darkness came over the land and at the ninth hour Jesus cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me why have you left me why am I I'm I'm undone and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and at that moment the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split what was happening I'll tell you what was happening Before Jesus died on the cross, do you remember when he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death? What he was saying was, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm I'm ruined. I feel like I'm coming apart, but you know what? No angel showed up and said, your sin is atoned for because Jesus was the sacrifice on the altar. He was the one that would make atonement possible for all of us. Jesus was shaken by the judgment of God for you. He absorbed into himself the searing pain of God's wrath and judgment for our sin. He became the altar of sacrifice. Jesus, the judge of the world, he didn't come the first time to bring judgment, he came to bear judgment. And he experienced the fiery heat of God's judgment so your sin could be atoned for and so your guilt could be removed and so that you and I could be reconstructed and repurposed to live for him to be on mission with him, to be holy, for he is holy. Oh, there's like five or six or ten more messages here. But this whole scene, this is what I want you to see this morning, this whole scene in Isaiah 6 foreshadows points forward to the cross, how Jesus experienced the burning pain of God's judgment so we wouldn't have to. He experienced the pain of God's judgment, but at that same moment, he demonstrate demonstrated God's holy love and holy power to cleanse us from sin, to remove our guilt, to heal us and save us, and to give us a whole new life lived on mission with God. And you know what? This right here is, is what Everything I talked about this morning comes down to the table, to the table. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he met for a last Passover meal with his disciples. And that night, Jesus repurposed the meal, making it holy, making it unique, set apart from all that had gone before, holy communion. He made the common elements of the meal holy. He took the bread and said, from now on, when you eat this bread, remember that it represents my body broken for you. He took the cup and he said, from now on, when you drink of this cup at this meal, remember the cup represents my blood shed for you. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Shed to inaugurate a new covenant relationship between you and God, a relationship where unholy people are made holy. Not because of what they do, but because of what I've done. When you put your faith and trust in me. Yeah, this is Holy Communion. It's like no other meal, it's like no other memorial. It's like no other celebration because our Savior made it all about him. And uh, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to partake with us when we observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment.